Hello, and welcome to the next installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. This episode, celebrating recent work by Meng Ai, is drawn from a panel brought together virtually and in person at Columbia University on April 13th, 2022, to discuss Ngai's recently published book, The Chinese Question, The Gold Rushes and Global Politics. Mei Ngai is the Lung Family Professor of Asian American Studies and Professor of History at Columbia University. She is also the co-director of the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race. The Chinese Question is Ngai's third book. Her first book, Impossible Subjects, Illegal Aliens and the Making of Modern America, was published in 2004 and focused on the rise of the preoccupation with illegal migration in U.S. immigration policy. Her second book, The Lucky Ones, One Family and the Extraordinary Invention of Chinese America, was published in 2010 and focused on the experience of one family in post-Gold Rush San Francisco. Her forthcoming book, Nation of Immigrants, A Short History of an Idea, is under contract with Princeton University Press. In addition to her published books, Nye has also written on immigration history and policy for The Washington Post, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, The Atlantic, The Nation, and Dissent. She received her PhD from Columbia University before going to the University of Chicago to teach, before ultimately returning to Columbia. Before her career as a scholar, Nye was a labor union organizer in New York City working for District 65 of United Auto Workers and the Consortium for Worker Education. Meng Ai began the event by discussing how this particular book came about, inspired by a student paper. Let's listen. The book started as a response to a student who wrote a paper that Chinese workers in California in the 19th century were coolies, that is, indentured workers who were like slaves. I knew this was not true, but it was difficult for me to correct them. The myth had been deeply embedded in the historical literature since the 1960s. That was based on a book that used a bad use of sources, meaning cherry-picked testimonies from congressional hearings. And then it was repeated over and over again by subsequent scholars. The Cooley myth, by likening Chinese to slaves, painted them as a servile race, having no humanity or individuality or agency, hopelessly unable to understand or practice democracy. That was the theoretical rationale for the exclusion laws. So I started the book with the goal of slaying the Cooley myth. And for me, this was both an empirical challenge and a question of political analysis. The project evolved into a larger story and argument about the contours of Chinese immigrant experience in the United States and the British settler colonies and the evolution of a global race theory, which is referred to as the Chinese question. South Africa and Africa more generally is not usually put into this comparative frame, but I find the episode there important within the global trajectory of the Chinese question because South Africa sits in between Australian and metropolitan British politics. So let me just say a few things about the main themes of the book. So first, in answering the empirical question about Chinese immigration, were they coolies or not, I wrote a social history. I found that in North America and Australia, the Chinese were part of mainstream gold-field economies but they're also separate from them. In both the US and Australia, Chinese and whites use the same methods uh, of mining and sometimes work together. 
There was racism and violence to be sure, but it wasn't all violence all the time. Chinese in North America and Australia formed the same kinds of organizations, small mining companies and egalitarian cooperatives, traditional native place organizations and secret brotherhood societies. And they resisted unjust taxation and laws with similar tactics, boycotts, petitions, non-compliance, etc. The Chinese in South Africa were not independent prospectors. They were imported as contract workers. So their experience was different than that in California and Australia. But I found some canny similarities. For example, they also had secret brotherhood societies on the mines, which organized the workers' resistance. In some ways, the South African experience marked the waning of the trade in indentured labor that had had its heyday in the mid-19th century in the European plantation colonies. Chinese workers just weren't having it anymore. Second, the Chinese question was not the same everywhere. The Chinese question, and I will say racism in general, is not a generic app that lives up in the cloud and can be just downloaded at any time, anywhere, by anyone. The argument that I unfold is about local politics that developed according to local conditions, but then traveled and adapted and developed into a global race theory. The theory of coolism originated in California. It was a racial shorthand that compared Chinese immigrants to slaves in the American South and also to indentured workers in the Caribbean, and therefore posed a threat to free labor. The coolie trope was so ubiquitous in the United States that I was at first surprised that it was not present on the Australian goldfields. But the history of unfreedom in Australia is not African slavery, but convict transportation of the English and Irish poor. The coolie myth arrived in the Antipodes in the 1880s, more than 20 years later, imported from California to urban political movements in Melbourne and Sydney, even though the Chinese population in the Australian cities was minuscule. The Chinese question was deployed as part of a racial nationalist movement for greater autonomy from Great Britain, i.e. the white Australia policy. In the British colony of the Transvaal in Southern Africa, opposition to Chinese labor by both British labor leaders and Afrikaner national politics was not so much that they were indentured per se, but that they would creep into semi-skilled and skilled positions. Their larger fear, of course, was that it would pave the way for native Africans to do the same. Finally, the Chinese question entered British metropolitan politics in 1906, when the Liberal Party used the Chinese question to stir middle class and labor voters by claiming that Chinese in South Africa were kept in conditions of slavery. The tradition of anti-slavery was a factor, but more important in my view was that the Chinese question had influence among the British labor unions because they viewed emigration to the settler colonies as a kind of racial entitlement or an imperial entitlement. Perhaps what is most striking about the circumnavigation of the Chinese question is that in comparing Chinese to slaves, whether in the US or Australia or South Africa or Great Britain itself, none demanded freedom for the Chinese. Barely a handful demanded free immigration and equal rights, among them Frederick Douglass and the London Anti-Slavery Society. But those who insisted most loudly that the Chinese were unfree demanded not their freedom, but their exclusion. Finally, in the last part of the book, I consider the impact of the exclusion laws on China's place in the world both in terms of its geopolitical standing and in economic terms. Chinese exclusion meant fewer opportunities, not only for workers, but also for Chinese capital abroad. Many merchants in the United States and Australia returned to China or did business elsewhere. In general, there was a redirection of Chinese emigration energies, whether labor or capital. This was part of a general trend in the late 19th and early 20th century of migrations from Central and Southern Europe to the Americas, British emigrations to the Dominions, and Asian migrations to Southeast Asia and North Asia. 
Second, the adoption of gold as the international monetary standard in the late 19th century was consequential for China, which remained on silver. The second round of war indemnities after the Sino-Japanese War and the Boxer Protocols were payable in gold rather than silver and practically bankrupted the Qing. But interestingly, in the first decades of the 20th century, China carried a modest net surplus in its balance of trade. American economists at the time credited remittance from Chinese abroad, about 50 million a year in between 1902 and 1913, and twice that amount in the 20s uh, for that surplus. Generally speaking, in taking up all these issues, I was mindful of keeping the Chinese immigrants in China as the focus of my book. The book is first and foremost, a work of Asian American and Chinese diasporic history, which I frame as a story about the alchemy of race and money, that is colonialism and finance capitalism in the late 19th century. It's my hope that students and scholars who are interested in the history of global capitalism, which is a hot topic these days, will read my book and learn something about Asian American history, that exclusion was not extraneous to the history of global capital, but integral to it as part of a general strategy of the West to contain China. Next, we'll hear from Lydia Liu, Wun Tsun Tam Professor in the Humanities in the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures at Columbia University. Her research focuses on modern China, cross-cultural exchange, and global transformation in modern history, with a focus on the movement of words, theories, and artifacts across national boundaries and on the evolution of writing, textuality, and media technology. She is the author of several books and articles, including The Nesbit Code, which won the 2014 Hong Kong Book Award. Here is Lydia Liu. Last spring, I, I created a new course called the Race and Empire in the Asia Pacific, in which my students and I looked at the entanglements of race and imperial warfare in the Asia Pacific, focusing primarily on China, Japan, and the US. We read W.E.B. Du Bois' essays uh, and had many discussions about the color line and also wondering about his changing positions on that after World War II. Um, so it was a good dis discussion. Um, it was just a few months before Professor Nye's book uh, was published. I wish I had been able to include your book on my syllabus, which would have clarified a lot of the issues that we've, we, we were uh, debating. Um, but I will in uh, include this book when I offer this class again <laughs> in the future, because I think this extraordinary book is essential reading for me and for anyone who wants to learn anything about 19th century British and American imperial expansion, about financial capitalism, uh, about immigration politics, racialized labor, and its reverberations to today's world. And of course, as uh, Professor Knight herself just put it, it's a global history of the Chinese diaspora as well. It's just this single book accomplishes so many things. I think this is an exemplary global history. But what is the Chinese question? In her book, Professor Nai explains the question this way. Are the Chinese a racial threat to white Anglo-American countries and therefore should be barred from them 
I was tempted to re restate it after reading a lot of the stories and, and the sources that you present. Uh, if I may restate this question um, on the basis of your rich archival uh, sources, is this, are the Chinese barbarians a threat to civilized white Anglo-American countries and therefore should be barred from them? I have something to say about this, the, the barbarians and the civilized, since I think uh, about 10 years before the period Actually, around the same time, uh, uh, the Anglo-Chinese Treaty of Tianjin in 1858 included an article that, that bans the Chinese use of what they call the English barbarian, what they call English barbarian. So it was very interesting. Simultaneously, you write a treaty to ban the Chinese use of the so-called English barbarian. At the same time, there is this proliferation in print, in popular media, about the Chinese coolies as barbarians. I'll, I'll come back to this later about the um, diplomatic dimensions of this. Um, and I think you make it very clear that this is not just a history of Chinese exclusion acts in various places, but uh, it's there are many, many dots that need to be connected, and I think you connect them extremely well. I have been familiar with the other side, with the archives on the Chinese side, having worked on some of, some of those, and I was really surprised that you were able to connect those to what was going on and really analyze their connections with precision and power. So, but this question, the Chinese question is really different from uh, the ways in which you People put like uh, the Jewish question up. It's really fundamentally different. I think you make it clear that from this whole history, there emerged a, a, a full gamut of incompatibilities. Uh, for instance, uh, a Chinese hedonism uh, and moral degradation are incompatible with Christian values and democratic values. Just give you some example. Chinese coolism is incompatible with free labor. As you just uh, commented on um, and Henry George, and I'm also very interested in the role of the trade union and progressive thinkers in this whole history. I'm fascinated by that. I'm also struck by your exploration of the contradictions of the same discourse. Uh, both in the, in, in the sense of the political economy that you illuminate surrounding the uh, so-called coolie question, but also in the sense of, uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the sense of a, um, of the making of nation states. And it's fascinating how the, this discourse was carried from California to Australia and then to South Africa. This is, uh, massively done and i think and you're also mapping out a discursive terrain through which we can uh, move toward a sense of clarity about why the chinese question has persisted through um decades and of course it arose through gold mining and related labor disputes in california and then went on to Australia and South Africa. But then um, 
it has become central to a lot of the later uh, discursive formations. And we see in this question, the origin of the ascent of the British and American financial power, you mentioned the gold um, standard. And, and also uh, you make it very clear for me, uh, finally, because in the past, uh, some of the dots were not connected as uh, clear as, as your book. Uh, it shows, it shows uh, that this question would not be legible outside these historical and political processes. What I find most powerful about this book is not just the breathtaking sweep of your comparative uh, investigation of all those continents. I think four continents, Euro-Asia, uh, uh, the, the Americas, uh, Australia, and um, Africa. And not even the extraordinary granularity of the individual stories that you bring to light in this uh, for the first time, but the very unique insights and political analysis that are aimed to overturn our long-held assumptions about race itself. We tend to think of race. Uh, um, I, I think it's almost impossible not to think of race today in terms of identities. But the political economy of gold mining provides a sharp angle on how we might think differently. It suggests that race is primarily a political question. It has always been posed as such in the field of socioeconomic relations of domination, where the self-identity of white Anglo-Americans forged and where white supremacy uh, finds its voice. And, and therefore, uh, one has to examine the, the politics of it. This includes international politics, diplomacy, treaty making. There, there are um, many, many powerful examples. For instance, the successful election of John Bigler on precisely the issue of Chinese exclusion when he became the first governor of California in 1852. By the same token, the Chinese question played a pivotal role in the landmark 1906 victory by the Liberal Party in Britain. There are many examples like this. So it's not just a question of the Chinese coolie or the diaspora. It, it is about a about a politics that somehow thrives on a paranoia. I think this book makes the paranoia apparent. What is surprising is that it seems so universally connected with progressive politics. So I, I wanted to hear more from you about this. Some of the names that appear in your book, for instance, Henry George, also appeared in progressive Chinese, uh, early Chinese anarchist, uh, anarchist journals. And so I was surprised that, uh, okay, there is this history. So how do we connect that? So it's fundamentally also some of these progressive voices are connected with the, uh, the Chinese revolution. I think you already indicated in, in some of the later chapters, but I 
I still have this questions. Uh, uh, this question about its current state, uh, the liberal ideas, progressive ideas, and um, how come these uh, have historically been very much part of this paranoia uh, uh, about Chinese laborers. Once again, here is Mei Ngai. Lydia's book on the clash of empires was very instructive to me. I read it when it came out and it really impressed me to think of the opium wars and, and the relations between the West and China as a clash of empires. And I think if we understand Qing China as an empire, we go some distance to understanding the West's paranoia about China. Even as China was weak, you know, agricultural society, not industrialized, China's uh, in the Western imagination, the idea that they're barbarians was key to justifying colonialism or semi-colonialism, so to speak, and key to uh, a century of containment strategy of China. And what's what I've been thinking about a lot lately is that a lot of what drove exclusion politics in the West was the fact that China was never actually formally colonized by any other power. So China had to be, it was not easy to contain and control China, even though the unequal treaties went quite far in disadvantaging China in, at every level, right? In diplomacy and in, in economics and trade, et cetera, et cetera. But not being colonized but directly by anybody, mobility could not be controlled. The mobility of Chinese workers, of Chinese merchants, Chinese people. So if you contrast it to India under British rule or any colony in the um, you know, non-European world colonized by Europeans, they control who can move around, who can leave and even who can move around internally. That's, very, that's controlled by the colonial government. So the British can use their authority to move labor from one part of the empire to the other, right? They move Indians from India to, to the Caribbean, Caribbean, right? And so, but Chinese labor and Chinese merchant capital is not easily, it's not easily contained. And I think this idea that China has to be contained is really key to uh, not just Western attitudes to China, but a whole kind of expansive view of what global power meant in the 19th century. China is kicked into the West, uh, Western world of international relations, it's kind of thrust into international relations. And it, it, it has its own debates, right, over decades about how do we deal with the West, right? They don't agree even within the Chinese elites. I think the paranoia is that China is, the potential of China in the world stage is to them unthinkable. And that, that potential is what you see realized in the 21st century in ways that maybe nobody could have imagined in the 19th century. But that's what you see now, is you see the unleashing of China's productivity, of its huge, the productivity of its huge population, the mobility of it, of not just workers, but also entrepreneurs and, and uh, professionals around the world. Uh, China's Chinese state investments uh, throughout the global south and even in Europe. These are this is all the nightmare. I think that in the 19th century they were had a very foggy idea of what that would mean. I was preparing for some talks about the anti-Asian hate, you know, going around in the last year, 
And I went back and I reread Frederick Douglass's famous speech in 1869, it's called The Composite Nation. And he gives a speech in Boston and he says, he's opposed to ideas, proposals for Chinese exclusion. And he says, let them come. Migration is a human right. Now that's to me astonishing, but in 1869, he says migration is, a, global migration is a human right. And yes, many of them will come. A lot of them will come, I'm paraphrasing. A lot of them will come. He goes, let them come. They'll come and they'll join us and they'll be part of our composite nation. Why not? China is a big country and it's a poor country, so let them come. And he was completely unconcerned. He was completely not paranoid about many people coming. And I think Douglas has been understood by many of us uh, for a long time as, as being the voice in the late 19th century of what path is America going to take? Is America going to take a path of democracy and equality or is it going to take a path of white supremacy? That was the choice that he posed to the United States, to Americans. And I think that we still have the choice today, right? That's still the choice before us in this country. It's the choice in many countries around the world. And I think it's a vision of um, society that, that rejects, right? Civil, barbarians be civilized and coolies be free labor and whites be non-whites, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that's where I have to say, it's hard to be hopeful these days. <laughs> it's not easy, um, but I think we have to, if we understand racism as a political project, then we can imagine an opposition to politics to that. And that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Meng Ai and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was celebrating recent work by Mei Ngai. The title of her new book is The Chinese Question, The Gold Rushes and Global Politics. And with that, we've come to the close of another season of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf. It's been a pleasure to learn with you this season. On behalf of myself and all of us at the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, thank you. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next season.